Shot Cut, back from our holiday high, with Ian Morrison, Aritina Mogasan, Naomi Asabre from home, Michael Wright, Doug Conzarefa, John Pedro, and Emma Alexander. The Shot Cut, 2019 January edition. Hello and welcome to the Jotcast. I'm Naomi and joining me in the studio today are Duncan. Hello. And Michael. Hello. Welcome guys. In the show this time, Emma Alexander interviews Chris Flynn about observing fast radio bursts plus using the moon to study climate change and using Gaia to weigh the Milky Way. And Ian Morrison and Haritina Mogosanu take a look at what's happening in the January night sky. But first, before all of that, Here's Judge Bendo with this month's news. In the news this month, the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 8 mission, the recent New Horizons flyby, and the Chinese moon landing. First, the 21st of December marked the 50th anniversary of the launch of the Apollo 8 mission. Apollo 8 did not land people on the moon, but it was an important step to an eventual moon landing. The mission was a general part of the space race in the 1960s when the United States and the Soviet Union vied to demonstrate which country could produce the grandest achievements in space exploration. The Soviet Union had been the first nation to orbit a satellite around the Earth in 1957 and the first to send a person into space in 1961. In 1968, the Soviet Union had been the first to launch unmanned missions that had returned from the moon. And these were seen as preparation steps to send a manned mission. NASA had been planning to use Apollo 8 to test their lunar spacecraft in orbit around the Earth, but plans were changed to send the spacecraft to the moon and back instead. The mission was an overall success. Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and William Anders became the first people to travel to another body in space. They also took multiple photos of both the moon and the Earth, including a very famous Earthrise photo from when the orbiter had passed around the far side of the moon. The lessons from the mission were applied to later missions, including Apollo 11, which was the first to land people on the moon. Next in the news, on the 1st of January 2019, the New Horizons spacecraft flew by a Kuiper Belt object given the official name of 2014 MU-69, but nicknamed Ultima Thule. The Kuiper Belt is a collection of icy bodies found in orbited just outside the orbit of Neptune, and it is thought to be the source of many short-period comets like Halley's Comet. Pluto, which New Horizons flew by in 2015, is the largest of the Kuiper Belt objects. Ultima Thule is thought to be more representative of many of the other objects found in the Kuiper Belt. Ultima Thule was revealed to consist of two spheroidal bodies of slightly different sizes that, combined, have a width of about 31 kilometers across. The two separate parts of the object are thought to have come together very gently during the very early stages of the formation of the solar system. Since then, the objects have changed relatively little. Because the density of objects in the Kuiper Belt is very low, Ultima Thule has not been affected by impacts or gravitational interactions with other objects. Because Ultima Thule is very far from the Sun, the ices have not melted or sublimated over time. Additionally, because Ultima Thule is so small, it has not undergone any type of geological or geothermal activity as seen on planets like Earth. Hence, Ultima Thule is similar to what objects from the early formation of the solar system look like. However, the surface of the object has been exposed to large numbers of cosmic rays over time, and this has transformed the ices on the surface into a very dark coating of organic material with a very dark reddish hue. While the first images have been released to the general public, more analyses and more scientific publications are likely to follow in the upcoming months and years. Finally, on the 3rd of January, the Chinese probe Chang'e 4 landed on the far side of the moon. This was the first science mission to the surface of the far side of the moon. Most other spacecraft have landed on the near side of the moon, although a few other spacecraft have crashed onto the far side either deliberately or accidentally. This also marks the first time that China's space agency has been able to do something no other nation's space agency has done before. The landing is not just a symbolic achievement. 
The far side of the moon is geologically different from the near side. The surface is more heavily cratered on the far side, and it has fewer of the smooth maria areas, which are found on the near side. The probe actually landed within the von Karman crater, very large impact crater on the far side, where the bottom appears to have been filled with magma in prehistoric times. A scientific analysis of the surface may reveal differences in the chemistry or history of the surface compared to what we see on the near side. Thanks for that, George. Now, M. Alexander interviews Chris Flynn about observing fast radio bursts, plus using the moon to study climate change and Gaia to weigh the Milky Way. Hello, I'm here with Dr. Chris Flynn from the Swinburne University of Technology in Australia. Um, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Um, so, you work on um, FRBs, fast radio bursts. Um, could you give us a little bit of a rundown as to what they are? All right, so fast radio bursts were discovered about 10 years ago. They're extremely bright, bright sort of flashes of radio waves that um, only last for a few milliseconds but have a, a huge number going off every day. So um, in about five minutes, every five minutes or so, one of these things flashes somewhere in the sky. So we had radio eyes, you would just see these things flashing off and they'd be the brightest thing on the sky. Every five minutes, one of these things is going off. As far as we know, they're coming from all directions on the sky. Um, the number is really surprising. There's very few things in astronomy that, that happen um, so often every day. Um, and we have no idea what they are yet. That that reminds me of uh, something that I've seen, that there are more theories as to what fast radio bursts are than we uh, currently have published FRB observations. Yeah, that's right. And although um, the um, FRBs are starting to catch up, so in the last um, six months, 12 months, things have really um, heated up and the number of FRBs have kind of doubled in that time. And we're sort of getting towards 75 or so known. Um, so we're starting to catch up with the theories. Oh, interesting. And um, what, what kind of theories are there? And are there any that are looking more likely than others in light of the uh, recent ones that have come in? So I, I don't really think that um, we've got uh, any good constraints on, on which theories are best right now. Um, the, the theories are all, it's such early days that most of the theories are really quite speculative and very few of them can make predictions about what we should be seeing. Um, so I think that there's quite a lot of maturing that needs to go on. And right now we're, we're really being driven by the things that we can do observationally rather than theoretically. Uh, speaking of observationally, um, how is it that you go about capturing an, uh, an FRB and uh, determine some of its properties? Right, so the trick is you need really high time resolution. So of course they're going, um, they're, they're only milliseconds or even, even faster than that. So what we basically need to do is get a big radio telescope and every, um, on a very short time scale, we look for these, these very bright, bright clips that go off. So to do that, you need very fast processing. And that means, and the way we do it at the telescope I work at, is we've got a quarter of a million dollars worth of video games machines and just stack them all in a big rack. So what's happened recently is that the graphics processing units that go in video games are the fastest computers on the planet and the bang for buck is fantastic. And um, so this was recognized a few years ago and that's why people are starting to use video games machines to do this. And it's the um, Mongolo telescope that you work on, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. So, um, what could could you describe that telescope a little bit and tell us all about it? So, it's um, it's the biggest physically, it's the biggest telescope in the southern hemisphere. It's 1.6 kilometers long, so an old-fashioned mile, uh, and then 1.6 kilometers long in the other direction, so across. Um, so, there's sort of 200 tons of metal and concrete that we that we can move very slowly. So, it moves so slow you can hardly see it moving. You have to stand there and and um, convince yourself. And it's very special because it's got a huge field of view. So we can see something like um, 20 times the size of the full moon. And that's great. That's exactly why we decided to go and refit it, which is what we're doing with all kinds of new electronics and the GPUs. So we could search for fast radio bursts. And is there any particular reason why you have it in the um, well, the, the T shape or the cross shape that it is, with two perpendicular arms? Uh, that's well, that's a historical thing. So it was built 50 years ago, a little over 50 years ago, um, 
and that's that's a convenient well that's a convenient design at the time um it could have been just uh it, you could spread it over an entire field but in with this design it means that you can you can control physically control it much much more easily than you do today so these days you wouldn't do that you'd spread things all over the place but in those days it was appropriate and I know one of the um, one of the aspects of uh, FFRBs is that it can be quite hard to localise whereabouts in the sky they've come from. Yeah. yeah. So all the FFRBs until we went to Malonga were being found with parks. So that's a big, it's a big 60 metre single dish. The thing about single dishes, first of all, there's a quite rough area on the sky from which the, the things can come. But they can also leak in from the sides quite easily. So you're never quite sure. Um, the way around that is to, is to use what's called an interferometer. So you just get a whole bunch of telescopes, get all the signals together, line all the signals up, and uh, get a much better localization for where they come on the sky. And that's what we're super keen to do right now because we think the next big thing for fast radio bursts is to figure out when you see one to catch it live with enough precision to know which, exactly which galaxy it's coming from. Mm. And in that respect, is it um, a little bit analogous to the gravitational wave detections and the electromagnetic counterpart that was, um, uh, well, within the past few years has been? Yeah, exactly. Mm. So the, all, the gravitational waves had even like hugely worse localization than, than even FRBs. Um, so that, that presented super challenges to like map so much sky when you're trying to figure out where they're coming from by looking for other signals at other wavelengths. Um, so where, but we've got the advantages that we we get the um, the first time we see it, we want to to uh, localize it that one and only time that we get it. And uh, what kind of timescales are you working on for that? Uh, so we we think we'll be like within a few months we'll be getting all the electronics um, built and ordered and put on the telescope. So six to six to twelve months now from now we're hoping to to get our first galaxy. Oh, that's that's interesting. So from uh, receiving a kind of first indication that you've you've got a fast radio burst, um, is, is it something that you want to be kind of identifying that as, as soon as possible and then doing yeah. follow up? And uh, what what kind of process uh, do you go through, or do the electronics go through once you've detected a fast radio burst? Yeah, that's a really good point. So the very first um, fast radio burst that was found it was found seven years after it had actually hit the telescope by looking in archival data. And in the last couple of years, we've got to the point where you get trained a computer system to actually recognise that they've happened and just do it automatically, so no humans needed, and that you've got for our system, you've got about 20 seconds to do that. Um, so one of our students has just got that working and so we get emails as soon as they think they've seen it. And that means also means that you can send off alerts, once you get really good at it, you can send off alerts to other telescopes, trigger them automatically as well and just cut out you know, hours or days of, um, of the time that humans would otherwise have spent. So as you've spoken about before, one one of the big things with the FRBs is um, localising where they are on the sky. But um, also, how how do you know how far away they are? Um, is it something within our well? I know that's probably not something in our own galaxy, but how how do we know that? Yeah, so that's a really good point. So that's actually what we're trying to do. We we want to really prove that they're they're as far away as we think they are. So we think they're coming from well beyond the galaxy. So from basically billions of light years and they've taken billions of years to get here um, but we have to prove it and the way to do that we think is to it, I mean, well it's defined if you can just show that it comes from a particular galaxy we know how to measure the distances to galaxies there's uh, like 50 years of, of mature technologies that we can we can just take these things and attach them to the rest of astronomy and other things that we know so that's the big aim Okay. Yeah, so I was going to say, well, once you've maybe, hopefully, pinned down some of the um, mysteries currently surrounding FRBs, um, if, if they are kind of on these greater distances outside our own galaxy, is, yeah. is there anything that we could use them for, for example, you know, to, to probe uh, the, the space in between where they're coming from? Yeah, that's another really, really good point. In fact, that's what really got my interest um, for this project. So for my PhD, what I worked on was was figuring out how much our galaxy weighs. Um, so it's well known that there's a lot of dark matter in the universe that's um, sitting around most galaxies. 
But what I concentrated on was not the dark part, but just figuring out how much the bit we can see weighs. Um, and those are ma it's made up of what we call baryons, the material that makes up the, the, the table and, and people and planets and stars. When I heard about FIBs, I realized that these could be used to measure the number of baryons in the whole universe. So it seemed like a really nice thing to jump from the, doing it in the galaxy to doing it in the whole cosmos. So what what FRBs let you do is measure how many electrons there are between any galaxy that it came from and the Milky Way. And from there you can figure out how many how much normal matter there is in the universe. So another thing that comes to my mind of um, radio pulses that we receive on Earth um, is pulsars. Um, how do FRBs um, compare to pulsars? Do you use similar techniques? Do pulsars crop up in your data a lot? And you think, oh, I might find an FRB. Oh, no, it's just a pulsar again. Yeah, that's that's good. Good point. So we actually spend most of our time looking for pulsars while we're, we're searching for FRBs. So we just look for we're timing pulsars and doing all kinds of pulsar science at the same time and all the time keeping this constant software running looking for the for the fast radio burst. But the pulsars are great too because they let us test our systems. You can go onto a bright pulsar. Um, there's some, some really convenient ones in the southern hemisphere where they just let off its regular pulses and you can check your system works. You can do that every day to keep everything um, tuned and so on. Um, and then at the same time, we're measuring um, hundreds of pulsars every week, how they're spinning, and um, there's all kinds of science that you can do from that as well. And um, from what I can gather, um, most of the FRBs that we've discovered have come from uh, the, the, the southern hemisphere um, part of the sky. And I think that's kind of by virtue of which telescopes are looking yep. for them. You've mentioned Parkes, Mongolo, I think ASCAP's mm. dis discovered yep. quite a few now. Um, and it's a little bit lacking in, in the northern hemisphere. Um, is there any reason for why the radio telescopes in the northern hemisphere haven't been picking up as many FRBs? So they've just started to. So there's a, a big experiment in Canada called CHIME, and it's about to absolutely explode with um, FRBs. So they've been, it's an experiment with doing something completely different. It was looking at a time in the early, in the universe, early universe after the Big Bang, when the universe went um, like completely dark, and then stars eventually started to form. And what they did was all the gas in the universe got ionized and that's there's lots of stuff, cosmology and things you can do with that so chime was set up for that but then frbs came along and they realized they could retro retrofit um and start to search for them and it would just be an awesome discovery machine and they're expecting to see many per day or even hundreds per day when it's when it's running compared to us finding uh, just a few every year so it's going to really change everything. Oh, wow. And uh, so obviously it's the, the clues in the air, fast radio burst. Um, are there any particular radio frequencies that are best for looking for FRBs? Are we looking at you know, really low radio frequencies, looking at your kind of low-frequency arrays, or do the dish telescopes also have a good uh, run-in? Yeah, so they, they were discovered at around um, 1.4 gigahertz. So that's the that's common frequency that's used around telescopes around the world it's a little bit higher than the like the mobile phone frequencies for example that we use um, so if you go to lower frequencies um, we didn't know what we'd see at very low frequencies it looks like that they're, they're just not showing up um, and there are some that have been seen at high frequencies but it's a it's a game that we'll be playing for the next couple of years trying to map out how they how they run across the spectrum and uh, you, you mentioned mobile phones um, yeah. in there. Um, how much of a problem is um, RFI radio frequency interference from things like mobile phones? Yeah, so that's, um, that was the big issue when we started the, the whole project. So we started small because we had no idea. We, we had to be sure that mobile phones were kind of going to wreck the experiment. So the mobile phones appeared, of course, long after the telescope was built, and they operate right in its, its operating frequencies. But mobile phones, uh, they're, because the telecommunications companies also want to pick them up, they're, they're actually very regular in how they communicate. And so um, we, can, we can spot them pretty easily. So, and it turned out that the, the little valley that the telescope's in is nicely protected and there aren't many people there. So only about 5% of the time 
is ruined by mobile phones and we get 95% and that's just fine. Okay, that, that yeah. doesn't seem so bad then. Mm, yeah. Okay, and, and you have uh, touched on this a little bit, um, but where do you see the future of FRB study going? What, what is it that you'll be doing and what is it you hope to see other people do as well? Well, the be- next big thing is to get that, those host galaxies and figure out that. Um, so it'll be really exciting to see what kind of galaxies do they come from. There'll be all kinds of clues there. So um, are they related to how stars, if they've got something to do with stars, how they relate to the history of stars in the universe, how many should we expect to see as we look further and further away. Um, and all the experiments now, they're so beautifully poised to answer these questions. So I think within like yeah, in a year or two, we're just going to know so much more about these. Brilliant. Um, well, um, I'm, I'm sure that we'll be uh, very interested to hear what's going on with FRBs in the next few years. We'll keep you posted, podcast listeners. Um, so now, thank you very much for joining me. Um, is, there, is there anything else actually you'd want to talk about before we head off? Any, any, do you do anything other than FRBs? Well, or pulsars? Yeah, I've just come, uh, just come from Copenhagen a couple oh, of wow, days okay. ago here, and we're working on a project uh, on Earthshine, which is the oh. light that the Earth... Uh, shines onto the dark side of the moon. Oh, wow. Okay, that's, that's quite different to FRBs then. Yes, so what we've got is we've got a telescope, uh, an automated telescope which takes images of the moon and by looking at the amount of light on the dark side we can measure how much bounce is bouncing off the Earth and that's related to climate change. Oh, wow. So okay. the amount of light reflecting off the Earth is, is light that well, is energy that didn't heat the Earth but the amount that went in is... So one of the questions we're asking is, with um, with climate change, the amount of cloud cover can change, and the amount of the albedo of the Earth can change, and this would affect how you calculate the global warming models. And we're using the Moon to try to try to measure that. Oh wow! Okay. And have you what kind of results have you been getting that so far, or oh, still in its early stages? Yes, yeah, still it's still in early stages, and we're still um, designing um, how we're going to run the experiment, and we're doing calibrations and and checking things work and stuff like that. Oh, that that sounds really interesting. How did you get involved in that? That was because I worked in Denmark for a while, and one of my um, astronomy colleagues went left astronomy and went to work in meteorology, and then and global um, climate science. And we were thinking about ways we could look at climate change from yeah, using astronomical techniques. Ah, that's really interesting. Well, that's one of the things that I personally find really fascinating is the use of astronomical techniques in, in other disciplines. It does seem like astronomy can become a very interdisciplinary thing. Um, so that's really interesting to hear about. Um, yeah, any, any other tricks up your sleeve? Anything else that you're up to? Um, the other the other project we've got running right now. So I've just been to China, and there's a satellite called Gaia. It's yes. been waiting. It's been waiting so long for it to come. Um, so I was part of the original science case. Helped write a few ideas for the original science case, along with about 300 other scientists. And now we've been, all been waiting like more than 20 years for the satellite results. So the results came out. And they were absolutely spectacular. We could hardly believe that they were so good. Um, and so what we're using them to do is try to measure the mass of the Milky Way. So this sort of like takes us back. So now we've, we've spent that time figuring out how much the, the part of the Milky Way we can see weighs. And with these data, we'll measure how much the whole thing weighs. And interest is those numbers don't agree at all. They, they differ by a factor of 10 or 20 or so. And that's the, the mysterious dark matter that, yeah. is, that our galaxy is sitting in, and that's we, we, we want to quantify those a bit better. Hmm. So, so, how much of the galaxy uh, can Gaia see? Oh, for stars, we're we're looking at the whole thing. We oh, practically wow, okay. see we basically see to the edge, and we can measure how thousands, tens of thousands of these things, how they're all moving around in the galaxy for the first time. This is it's just absolutely not doable before Gaia and you can see how they're moving in 3D space and from that you can figure out like the balance between gravity that's holding them in place and how fast they're moving tells you tells you the mass of the Milky Way. Okay so did, did you get any big surprises from that Gaia result or was it or was everything as you were expecting? It was kind of as we were expecting or at least as my my colleague um, so I'd actually not been paying much attention to the field for a while and she knew she she knew and um, it, it actually kind of matched what people have been doing with models rather well. 
So that's always that's always a nice thing. Sometimes you prefer to see God get it. Great to get a big surprise. That's that's the, the dream scenario in science. You 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 want you want things not to fit. That's when you know. That's a sure sign of progress. But in this case, it was pretty good. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, so are you going to be involved with? Is there any more uh, data analysis that needs to be done there? Or any more theories uh, to be formulated? Yeah, there's lots of that. There's so many projects we can run with this. So we'll be busy for a decade. It's just absolutely fantastic data set. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Cool. Um, and th- this is this is already three different things that uh, that you're working on at the moment. Is, do, you, do you have anything else up your sleeve? No, that's, that's about it. That seems like that is quite enough uh, for for one person to be doing. Um, but um, yeah, that's all incredibly interesting. So thank you very much for uh, joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for that, Emma. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits that we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. For this month, my odds and ends is about the holiday asteroid imaged by NASA using radar. Now, this asteroid, called 2003 SD220, has provided astronomers with an outstanding opportunity to obtain detailed radar images of the surface and the shape of the object, and it has helped them to understand its orbit. Now, this asteroid safely flew past Earth on Saturday, 22nd of December, and from the images they took, the asteroid is at least one mile long. When you look at the images, it's actually very like a hippo that is just rising out of the water after sinking in for a while. It has the rage and the long back. It's actually a very nice image. So they observed the asteroid by using observations from the Goldstone Deep Space Communication Complex in California and also the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia and the Arecibo Observatory Antenna in Puerto Rico. So what's interesting about this asteroid is that with this closer flyby, they're able to get more details about the asteroid. So what they found out was that it had bright spots, and these bright spots could be boulders, and they had dark spots, and these dark spots could be craters. So it has both the boulders and the craters on the surface, and also it had a slow rotation, and it sort of rotates on a short axis like all other asteroids that are flying past Earth. It actually rotates on a long axis, so it has a very weird rotation, about 12 days, which is quite interesting. It first was first detected in 2003 by astronomers in NASA. So it was first put on a list of potentially hazardous asteroids because it was so close to Earth. But with this close observation, they found out that, and the radar images, they found out that it's actually not going to harm Earth. So it's actually safe. And the next time it's to come close to Earth will be 2000 and 70 and it's still very very far away and it's actually going to pass safely near earth but not as hazardous as they thought in 2003 so i found that interesting that while we're enjoying our christmas meals or preparing for christmas on our shopping there was an asteroid flying by and we had no idea about it well at least it's one of the ones that's not going to hit us if it's flying by yeah we can be assured of that so (laughs) something to to get us to sleep better i guess so mike Concerning us sleeping better, I want to read a statement from the press release that says, However, these radar measurements further refine the understanding of 2003 SD220's orbit, confirming that it does not pose a future impact threat to the Earth. So Duncan, your autumn ends. Of interest this week is that Dr. Nancy Grace Wellman passed away at the age of 93 at the end of December. She was the first woman to hold an executive position at NASA as Chief of Astronomy at NASA's Office of Space Science. Known as the mother of Hubble, she is best known for her work on the planning of the Hubble Space Telescope, which launched in 1990 is still going strong and producing great science. She works at the Yerkes Observatory, University of Chicago, and the Naval Research Laboratory Radio Astronomy Program. She was also a big advocate of women in science and was an active public speaker and educator. Well, I love anybody who is an advocate of women in science and serves as a role model for women who want to get into science. Also, Lego made a kit of her last year. Oh, cool. With a model Hubble Space Telescope. <laughs> That's so cool. I should get one of those. So this wonderful woman was involved in Hubble and getting Hubble started and has been, I think, very instrumental in space science. Yes. She was the main planner for the Hubble Oh, then we should all be grateful for her because I think Hubble has given us a lot of data to work with and helped us to understand a lot about what's happening out there. Exactly, not so much for me in the radio astronomy, but for <laughs> those in the visible, yes, Hubble has been fantastic. Yes, those who astronomy have benefited a lot from Hubble. 
And as well for the perception of science, some of the best things in terms of getting images out to the public have been some of Hubble's fantastic space photos. So it's done a lot for that as well. Well, I have one of Hubble's images on my Facebook account, so I guess that's one benefit I have from Hubble. Well, and thanks to her, I think she's been really great, and we're all grateful for her contribution. Michael, you want to cover your thoughts and ends? Okay. So for this week, I want to talk a bit about some research that's been going on in the United States that tangentially relates to astronomy. Now, what they want to do at the moment is detect underground nuclear explosions interesting and useful research for them and one of the ways they've been doing this is to set off a chemical explosion underground and try and detect it by vibrations in the air with a balloon. Now that's wonderful and they're starting to get results on this. The interesting thing for astronomy is if you've got a planet like say Venus which is horrible on the surface and you'll struggle to get probes or anything down there Can you find out about what's going on underneath that surface by picking up air vibrations from a balloon? And in this test on the ground, they floated their balloon about 50 kilometres above the surface. So, 50 kilometres above the surface of Venus, things aren't so bad. And we might actually be able to pick up data from this. And that's very interesting. So, for example... A very long time ago, the Soviets put a probe called Vega up above the surface of Venus, and it only died because its battery ran out. And that was after about two and a half days. And that gives us far better chance of getting data than if we use something on the surface. Now, at the moment, this is just one test, and they knew where the explosion was. So the next stage of that research is to find the source of less predictable earthquakes on the Earth. The idea is, once we find that this works on Earth, we can try this on Venus. And there is another very useful thing about Venus. Because of its thick atmosphere, we might be able to get a better set of vibrations through the air on Venus than we do on Earth, making this a very useful technique. But at the moment, we're still making explosions in the Earth. I would like to wait and see in a few years how this gets on, and whether we could in the end get a mission to Venus to test these ideas. So they wanted to test stuff on Venus by testing them on Earth first? Well, the test on Earth is because it's useful for detecting underground explosions. But of course, Venus being a volcanic planet, uh, we as astrophysicists could kind of steal this idea and use it to test what's going on under the surface. Oh, okay. When you talk about underground explosions, do you mean underground nuclear test explosions? Yes. Well, that explains why the Americans are interested in it. It's very serious research trying to work out if a country is secretly testing nuclear weapons. So, obviously, this gets a lot of research done into it. I think it's quite interesting that astronomy can profit from that. Yeah, but because Venus has volcanic eruptions, and so by testing the vibrations of the volcanic eruptions, we can understand the structure inside Venus. Inside Venus. That's the hope. We can understand what's going on inside Venus. Science always steals ideas from other sciences, so I think we can wait and see how that goes and then we can apply to studying Venus. That'd be great. It would be lovely. Thank you guys for us at ends. And now, still looking up at the stars, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. The Night Sky for January 2019. Before I start, I really want to bring your attention to what is probably the greatest highlight of the month, and that is in the pre-dawn sky on January the 21st, between about 4.40 and 5.40, we have a total eclipse of the moon. So let's just hope it's clear that morning. Well, what about the heavens that we see at this time of the year? Well, it's a wonderful skyscape, dominated, of course, by the constellation of Orion the Hunter, If you take the three stars that make up its belt, follow down to the left, you'll come across the brightest star in the sky, which is Sirius, the brightest star in Canis Major. Following those three stars up to the right, you come to the constellation of Taurus the Bull, and the open cluster, the Hyades cluster. In front of that cluster, about halfway between us and it, is the orange star, actually a red giant star, called Aldebaran. 
if we follow upwards a bit further, we come to the lovely open cluster called the Pleiades. If you take a long exposure photograph, you see it surrounded by some lovely blue nebulosity. It appears that the Pleiades cluster is moving through a cloud of dust, which is scattering the light from the young, very hot blue stars. Up to the left of Orion, we have the constellation of Gemini, with Castor and Pollux, the heads of the heavenly twins. Down to the left of the foot of the uppermost of the twins is a very nice open cluster called M35. High above, we have the star Capella, almost overhead, I suspect, and that's the brightest star in the constellation of Auriga. The Milky Way passes through Auriga, and there's some very nice open clusters that are visible with a small telescope. As the night progresses, Leo the Lion will be rising over in the east. And between Gemini and Leo, there's a rather blank area of sky, which contains the constellation of Cancer, the crab. Just above the brightest, the only really bright star in Cancer, is a rather lovely little open cluster called Prisope, M44, the beehive cluster. So quite a lot to actually see. I do think it's one of the loveliest regions of the sky, the other being the summer constellations of Cygnus the Swan, Lyra the Lyre, and Aquila the Eagle. So let's have a look at the planets. Well, Jupiter starts a month rising about 5am and brightens from magnitude minus 1.9 as the month progresses, while its angular size increases slightly from about 32 to 33.5 arc seconds. One of the highlights show how it combines with Venus to give us a lovely view in the east before dawn. Well, Saturn passes behind the sun on the 2nd of January, so will not be visible in the pre-dawn eastern sky until around the third week of the month, shining with a magnitude of plus 0.6. With a disk about 15 arc seconds across, and with rings spanning over twice this, it will rise one and a half hours before the sun by month's end. Mercury has just gone through a very nice apparition, and it might still just be glimpsed in the first few days of the month, very low in the southeast, before sunrise, shining at magnitude minus 0.4. I suspect you would need binoculars to spot it, as this reduces the background glare from the sun, but look, please do not use them after the sun has risen. Well, Mars, though fading from magnitude plus 0.5 to plus 0.9 magnitudes during the month, it remains prominent in the southern sky after sunset, at an elevation initially of 36 degrees, which increases to 41 degrees during the month as it moves northeastwards across the constellation of Pisces. If only it could have been at this sort of elevation when closest to the Earth last year. Its angular size falls from 7.5 arc seconds to 6 arc seconds during the month, so I suspect you'll not be able to spot any details on its salmon pink surface. Well, you can't have failed to spot Venus high in the eastern sky before dawn during December. It actually reaches its greatest elongation west, some 47 degrees away from the sun, on the 6th of January. So still dominates the eastern sky, rising some three hours before the sun. It begins the month with a dazzling magnitude of minus 4.6. During January, its angular size reduces from just over 26 to 19 arc seconds. And that's as it moves away from the Earth. But at the same time, the percentage of the illuminated disk, which is called its phase, increases from 47% to 62%, which is why the brightness only reduces from minus 4.6 to minus 4.3 magnitudes. Well, finally, what about the highlights? Well, on January the 3rd, before dawn, Jupiter can be seen looking southeast, if clear, of course, down below a very thin crescent moon. The red giant star Antares is down to the right of Jupiter. Around the 6th of January, which is around the time of new moon, there's a chance still of seeing the largest galaxy in our local group, M31 and Andromeda, and perhaps you might find the third largest, which is M33 in Triangulum. And on the night sky page, just search night sky Jodrell, 
I give you two ways to find Andromeda. One starting from the square of Pegasus, which is setting down towards the west after sunset. And also, if you find Cassiopeia higher up in the sky, the three rightmost stars make a bit of a V, and you just follow that V down to find Andromeda. If you're away from towns and cities, and it's a really dark sky, you still have then a chance of finding M33. That's the third largest galaxy. It's a face-on spiral, and its surface brightness is pretty low, so a dark, transparent sky will be needed to spot it, perhaps using binoculars 8x40, or perhaps 10x50. Follow the two stars that may have got you to M31 from Andromeda back again, and keep going the same direction, sweeping slowly as you go. As you reach the constellation Triangulum, you might find it looking like a little piece of tissue paper stuck on the sky, just a little bit brighter than the sky background. On January the 12th, in the evening, Mars lies above a waxing moon. That should look quite nice. I've mentioned too, on the 21st before dawn, a total eclipse of the moon. On the night sky page I have a chart which actually shows you the times at which the various parts of the eclipse take place, as the moon moves into the penumbra, and then from the penumbra into the umbra, and out again at the end. So as I said, it will be fully eclipsed from 0441 to 0543. And again, let's hope it's clear to allow us to take some nice photographs. On January 31st, just before dawn, a thin crescent moon lies between Jupiter and Venus. You need a low horizon towards the southeast, and then you might be able to see the thin waning crescent moon lying with Jupiter on its right and Venus shining brightly on its left. Finally, an object on the moon. This month I've chosen the Hyginus Rill, for some time a debate raged as to whether the craters on the moon were caused by impacts or volcanic activity. We now know that virtually all were caused by impact. But it's thought that the Hyginus crater that lies at the centre of the Hyginus Rill may well be volcanic in origin. It is an 11 kilometre wide rimless pit, in contrast with impact craters which have raised rims. And its close association with the rill of the same name associates it with internal lunar events. It is thought that an explosive release of dust and gas created a vacant space below, so the overlying surface collapsed into it, so forming the crater. Well, quite a lot to see, and hopefully if we have some nice clear nights and it's not too cold, you'll have a chance to look at some of these lovely things in the heavens this month. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haritina Mogashanu with the night sky where you are. Kia ora from New Zealand. Hi, everyone. We're here at Space Place at Car Observatory holding galactic conversations from the heart of Wellington in the Southern Hemisphere, my favorite place to be with the music of the amazing Rian Sheehan, our Wellingtonian star composer. I'm Haritina Mogoshanu. And I'm Samuel Liskey. Space Place is our historical astronomy icon here in New Zealand and we are located right at the heart of our capital city. And we're so lucky to be among the capital cities in the world from where you can still see the Milky Way. And this time of the year we are looking straight into the edge of our galaxy, the Milky Way, and Orion is the main feature out there in the sky. Well, everyone in the Northern Hemisphere celebrates through the midwinter festivities, here in the south, we have the longest days and the shortest nights while roasting in sunshine. Well, most of the time. We have to wait all the way to 9pm for the sun to set. There is one planet visible with the naked eye in the early night sky, Mars. But if you are an early riser, you're in luck. All the other naked eye planets are in the morning sky. As for deep sky objects, the month is perfect for observing Orion and some of the objects from the Northern Hemisphere that sit below Orion in the Southern Sky, such as the fabulous Rosette Nebula and the elusive M74 galaxy. Back to the South Celestial region, the Magellanic Clouds and some awesome circumpolar objects are here. Check out our videos on how to find them on Milky Way Kiwi. And did you know that this time of the year you can see the brightest, 
the second brightest and the third brightest star in the sky from here in Wellington. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things to observe this time of the year. So here's what you need to do. If you have a solar telescope, you can admire a very quiet sun. Almost no spots adorn the sun, but we will be watching it closely to see if any appear. Watch for the moon. It's new on the first Sunday of the month, which means that it's a good week for deep sky observations, and full on the third week, the 21st of January. You must wake up very early in the morning to see the other planets, which are mostly in the morning sky, so if you're a morning person, then you're in for a show. Venus, Jupiter and Mercury are all visible in the morning sky as well as the Moon in the first week of the month and Saturn towards the end of the month. You can wake up as early as 3.30 for Venus and Jupiter is rising up every morning earlier so it catches up with Venus around the 22nd when they will rise together and then Jupiter will move higher than Venus. Saturn will be rising around 4.30 in the morning at the end of the month. So who said the night sky was only for the night owls? But what is there left for the night owls if everything is in the morning sky? Mars. Mars is still in the evening sky. Although we will need to wait until 9pm when the sun sets and then look northwest. Mars is still bright so it should be easy to spot. Unseen to the naked eye, to the left of Mars is Neptune and to the right is Uranus. Uranus is 19 astronomical units from the Sun, that is 162 light minutes away. Although you can see Uranus, which has a visual magnitude of 5.8 with the naked eye from a very dark place, for Neptune you will definitely need a telescope. Both are beautiful with a bluish tint. I really like this time of year, as it's the time when we can observe the brightest stars in the sky, as here we are so lucky to see the first three of them in order of magnitude. So here is the dog star, which is the brightest star in the entire sky. Canopus, I call it the cat star. It's a very respectable astronomer here in New Zealand who has a cat calls it Canopus. I had one too. This is the second brightest in the sky. And Alpha Centauri, the third brightest star, actually a star system which contains our closest neighbor Proxima, which being a red dwarf we cannot see with the naked eye, but we know it's there. To see all these stars, all you have to do is to follow the path of the Milky Way from Orion to the Southern Cross. Our galaxy intersects the path of the ecliptic in Taurus and Gemini, which are neighbouring Orion, and in Scorpius and Sagittarius, which are opposite Orion in the sky. Since the Sun is in Sagittarius this month, we obviously cannot see that constellation. So, because this time of the year there are many distinctive bright stars in the night sky, I call it the season of the shining ones. Now about gastronomy. New Zealand has lots of pots and pans in the night sky, fishes and squids and other marine creatures. The most famous of all is the pot, also known as Orion's Belt. The pot is made by the three stars of Orion's Belt and the handle is Orion's Sword. Very famous constellation here, or asterism if we are to be correct. Down on the wake of the Milky Way is the other spectacular but perhaps less famous as it was just invented by kids in Christchurch a few years ago and I just so happened to know as they came to one of my planetarium shows and told me about it. This is the Celestial Frying Pan. Imagine the handle is made by the two pointers of the Southern Cross, Hadar and Alpha Centauri and the pan itself is made of the other bright stars of Centaurus, Birdun, Molifine and Delta Centauri. Now, with a bit of imagination, the frying pan can be extended to a walk, as the stars Birdun and Molifine make a beautiful triangle with Omega Centauri. Now, in the frying pan slash walk, you have the fish in the shape of the Southern Cross, and Maori called the dark patch that we know as the jewel box, they call it the flounder. So you have the fish and the flounder in the frying pan. So not only are there pans and pots in the southern sky, but there are also crosses. There's the Southern Cross, the Diamond Cross and the False Cross. And these are like official asterisms. That is, if you ignore the fact that every combination of four stars can look like a cross. The great thing about them is that they are teeming with amazing deep sky objects, such as the famous jewel box open cluster near the Southern Cross. Two favourites of ours are the star clusters Omicron Valorum and NGC 2516, right close to the False Cross region. 
NGC 2516 is next to Avior and Omicron Valorum is next to the star Delta Valorum. So these are open cluster of stars, but also talking about the globular cluster of stars, Omega Centauri, we must mention that here in the Southern Hemisphere there are two monster globular clusters, Tucane 47 and Omega Centauri. Omega Centauri is an amazing sight in the eyepiece as it fills the eye with millions of stars. Astronomers think that Omega Centauri is the centre of a galaxy captured by the Milky Way, with its outer stars now assimilated into our own galaxy. The other sun highlight, 47 Tucana, is a beautiful object in the eyepiece as well. It's a very bright globular cluster and can be seen with the naked eye, though not from the middle of Wellington. The Milky Way isn't the only galaxy with globular clusters. Most galaxies seem to have a bunch of them. Next door in Andromeda, there are around 500 so far observed, and the huge galaxy M87 may have around 13,000 of them. So when the moon is out and you can't go galaxy hunting with your telescope, don't forget that globular clusters make for fantastic viewing and can give you a really rewarding view of these objects that are orbiting our galaxy. And also remember, it doesn't really matter what you call the stars, as long as you can remember where they are. May you enjoy the beginning of another happy rotation around the sun. I'm Hari Tinamogoshano. And I'm Sam Liske. And we are Milky the Milky Way, Way Kiwi, Kiwi at, at Space Place at Carter Observatory in New Zealand, Southern Hemisphere, with a January podcast, the Southern Hemisphere section for the broadcast. Thank you. Clear skies. Thanks for that, Hari Tina. And now on to the feedback. We have a card from Philip. Thank you, Philip. It says, to all other Jodcasts, past and present, thank you for all the fascinating podcasts. Best wishes of the season and for 2019, Philip. Thank you so much. You finally have a card after so long. Please send us posts and cards. We love them. We paste them all over our studio, so we're waiting for your postcards. We also have a Facebook message from James Walters that says, Great show as always. The photo doesn't do the sky justice, but Easter Island is one of the places where the International Space Station is the next closest inhabited place. It's about a thousand miles to the next nearest inhabited place. Season's greetings to all the Jodcasters. Season's greetings to everyone. We hope you enjoyed your Christmas and your New Year. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net or Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Jodcast, or Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Jodcast, YouTube at youtube.com forward slash Jodcast, Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash Jodcast. And don't forget, you can send us post. The address is on our website. Now thanks to Chris Flynn for the interview. The editors were George Bendo and Tom Scrag. The producer was Naomi Asabri-Frippon. Until next time, join on! on.